A scripture is from Exodus 32, 1 through 8 this morning. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. The word of God. We are in the third week of a sermon series called The Royal Priesthood. Uh, and, and priests can mean many things in our culture today. I mean, if you just are maybe a part of different church traditions, whether growing up or more recently or um, or just kind of involved in different religion around the world. You know, many religions use the word priest, but we're kind of looking at the Bible. We're looking back uh, particularly into the Old Testament, and actually priests go all the way through into the book of Revelation, um, and kind of looking at how does, how does Scripture define what a priest is, uh, why does that matter to us, and why does that matter with Jesus ultimately being our, our true high priest uh, as we get into the New Testament, not to tell you too many spoilers. Uh, but that's the direction it's going, right? Um, and we will dive into that even more Palm Sunday and Easter as we get to those sermons. So uh, two weeks ago, we started with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Now, uh, what was very interesting about the Garden of Eden, it's almost, it's almost like this temple-like uh, place itself, or rather maybe the temple uh, later on is kind of a mini Garden of Eden. Um, and, and as Adam and Eve are there, their, their roles, as how it's described, is, is pretty priestly kind of language. They're doing priest-like uh, things in the garden, but, but of course they fall short, and, and they turn away from God, and they're, and they're kicked out of this place. So it leaves this tension within us of how can God's people, or how can people in general, get back into God's blessing? How can, how can we receive this blessing again? They're out of Eden, they're out of this role, they're out of this special place, but but yet it leaves this longing uh, within us. And now last week, we looked at the very first person given the title of priest uh, in the Bible, which is this interesting priest-king figure that encounters Abraham, and his name is Mechizeldek, and you all want to try to say it out loud, uh, but it's a very great name. Uh, and it's very interesting, and actually, uh, I mentioned before that, if you get into the book of Hebrews, particularly in the New Testament, which it sounds like you will in uh, Hardy Boys, uh, there's a lot of Mechizeldek language. 
this name comes up over and over again, and this is the story that he was from. So again, that was last week. Today we're going to look at Moses and Aaron. We're going to look at the start of, of course, God freeing his people out of slavery in Egypt and kind of the start of, of what we more commonly call the priests um, in the Old Testament, the Levitical priesthood, the descendants of Aaron that, that go forward as the Levites. Uh, but before we get there, just uh, to recap a little more, um, again, we see Adam and Eve in the beginning, and, and they're in this special role, they're in this special place, they're functioning in this way in the garden, and it's, and it's all called God's blessing, and it's this wonderful thing, but they fall short. They actually lit one of the creatures that they're told to rule over. They lit one of the creatures, trick them, and convince them to to eat of the tree. And, and as a result, they get kicked out of the garden, but it's important to note that there's a sliver of hope here, that as they're kicked out, they're given this, this word, this sliver of hope, and God promises that one day, one of their descendants will come and will defeat this evil and will restore humanity kind of into their proper place, into their role as, as royal priests, that, that, the, that there's a hope in the future, and it will come through Adam and Eve. Again, spoiler alert, but we'll get there in a few weeks. It's, it's Jesus. Okay. Sunday school answer. When I was a kid going to church, whenever the teacher in Sunday school would ask a question, you said Jesus, you were right 95% of the time. And if, if it wasn't Jesus, it was like David or Moses, and then you could like argue that you were right because there's like parallels going on. So the answer is Jesus. He's this sliver of hope. He's this one that is to come. He, he's, he's fully human. He's fully divine. He's the one that will crush the head of the snake, but will also be struck by the snake. He's the high priest, but he's also the sacrifice at the same time. And then we went into Abraham and Sarah and talked about, talked about their uh, descendants a little bit. And, and, and just to, I don't know, sum up the entire book of Genesis in five minutes, um, why not? Uh, Abraham and Sarah, their descendants, end up down in Egypt. And we're told by the time they get there, you know, this is after the story of Joseph, all of this is going on, uh, that there's, there's 70 people. There's 70 people strong. That, that's how big they've already become by the time they get to Egypt. Uh, and we are told that they continue to receive God's blessing. That's how it's worded in Scripture. And they grew in number. Here's a quote from Exodus 1, verse 7. Talking about the Israelites, it says they became increasingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly and became so numerous that the land, meaning Egypt, was filled with them. But eventually they became enslaved under a very violent ruler, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join with our enemies and fight against us and leave our country. So Pharaoh enslaves the Israelites, and we're told that they're enslaved for 400 years. In Egypt, 
But this whole time, as, as we read this, we keep thinking back. But God promised something to Abraham and Sarah, right? God promised to Abraham and Sarah that he will bless those that bless them. This was the, the focus of last week's sermon, that he will bless those that bless them. But the other side of it is that God will curse those that curse Abraham and Sarah and all their descendants. We're told that despite this terrible treatment in Egypt, that God continued to bless the Israelites and they continued to grow in number. But we also see parallel to that, that the cruelty of the Egyptians continues and it reaches its high point in Exodus 1, 22. It says, Then Pharaoh gave the order to all of his people, Every Hebrew boy that is born you must throw into the Nile, but you must let every girl live. And interestingly enough, it's through this very order that Moses gets placed in the Nile, but gets placed in a basket and floats right into the king's palace. Now, this is, this is how God often works in the Bible. And hinting forward, it's through this very order of, of through the water that the armies of Pharaoh are crushed and destroyed, and Pharaoh himself drowns. The very same fate that he ordered for these baby boys. And again, skipping ahead, we get to the point where Moses is appointed by God. He's appointed to represent God to Pharaoh and to lead God's people out of slavery and back to their ancestors' promised land, the promised land of Abraham and Sarah. Why don't we pause here for a moment, and you have your Bible. Uh, this is Exodus chapter 3. Uh, and I think it's important to kind of look at, at this story, because it's often, um, we, we kind of think about Moses, we think about maybe even Aaron, if you know much about him, and we kind of put them up on these high pedestals, and they are great figures in the Old Testament, but the Bible is not super flattering about Moses, and particularly Aaron, and particularly the priest. So if this is written as, you know, some kind of priest fan fiction kind of document, it does a terrible job. Because what it talks about is their fallenness, their brokenness, how they often turn away from God and lead people away from God. So Exodus chapter 3. You know, Moses grows up in Pharaoh's house, and, and he flees to, to a country called Midian, now, the Midianites, they live in an area northwest, uh, kind of northwestern Saudi Arabia, if you know your world geography. Uh, they're close to like the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, that's, that's where they are. They're actually, they come up before in the Bible. They're descendants of Abraham. Uh, a lot of people might not realize that, but, but Abraham uh, continues to have more children. If you read in the book of Genesis, he has, uh, of course, his wife, Sarah, but then Sarah passes away later in life, and Abraham remarries and has other children, and one of them is um, Midian, who then his descendants become the Midianites. So they're kind of cousins to the Israelites. They, they live down in this region, and Moses has fled over to that area, and, and we're told that uh, he's taking care of sheep. And Exodus, um, yeah, basically he's taking care of sheep, and he comes across what, what we're probably fairly familiar with. It's the burning bush story. He sees this bush, and it's burning, but it's not being consumed by the fire. That would, that would stand out, right? <laughs> uh, so there's this bush, and it's burning. He's kind of watching it, but it's, it's never burning up. It's just constantly burning, and he approaches it, and he hears God's voice. 
And through this story, this is Exodus uh, chapters 3 and 4, God is is telling him his plan, that he's going to use Moses. And Moses is, is very unlike some other characters in the Bible, where Moses then turns down God five times. He's maybe a little more like us than he is like, like some other characters in the Bible. So, so here he gives five excuses, and I'm just going to tell you what God's response is each time. Excuse number one for Moses. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? So who, who am I? Who am I that you are choosing me? Why, why me? And I love God's response. I will be with you. He doesn't even address both. Like, who are you? It doesn't matter. What matters is that, that I will be with you. That's who you are. Who you are is someone that God will be with. And Moses, he goes on. And he says, what if the Israelites ask who sent me? You know, kind of who are, who are you? Kind of a question. And this is where we get uh, the revelation of, of God's name being given to Moses. He says, I am who I am. This is who you are to say, sent you to the Israelites. I am sent you. And again, this is, this is, Mo, or this is God for the first time using his, his name. So God is not his name. In case, in case you're confused there, God is a title in the Old Testament. It's, it's El uh, or Elohim. And there's other El around. Um, you know, one is, one is capitalized when we use it in the Bible. That's normally talking about this specific God. And then there's just other spiritual beings. So it's kind of the title for a spiritual being. Uh, but here is where we hear God's name, Yahweh. That is this I am who I am language. Rejection number three, God, Moses says, what if they don't believe me? He's just going through his list. What if they don't believe me? So God gives Moses several miraculous signs. Um, you know, you can read it uh, for yourself. They're great things. You know, he's able to place his hand into his cloak and take it out, and he has a, he has a terrible skin disease, and he puts it back in and takes it back out, and it's, it's healed again. Kind of several miracles that he's able to do to kind of prove that, that God is with him, that he's not just some crazy person that's trying to get them all killed by Pharaoh. Then one of my favorites, number four, it's Moses saying, I don't speak so well, but I love it how he says it. This is my favorite part, because he says it in a very poetic and beautiful way. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Isn't that a beautiful way to say I don't speak that well? <laughs> I don't know if that's tied in there, but, but I just love it. Uh, and then later on, of course, Moses writes so much of the Old Testament, and, he, and he's such a great leader, and he speaks, and he actually is the one that gives them the Ten Commandments. But here he's saying, I don't know. I don't know if I'm the right one. I don't think I have the gifting that, that you want. God simply says, kind of like he did in the first one, I will help you. I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. Again, it's not about you. It's not about your gifting. It's not about what you think you have. It's about what, what God will do. And then the last one, we really get at the root of what Moses is trying to say here. And he just says, please send someone else. <laughs> so number five, please send someone else. I feel like that's, that's the theme. 
going through all five of these, right? So Moses just says, please send someone else, God. Maybe you've been there. And then we have this interesting line. It says, and then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. And he said, what about your brother Aaron the Levite? Now, a couple things here. God's anger burned against Moses. This is the first time in the entire Bible, believe it or not, that that God is said to be angry. A lot of people are always surprised because, you know, the flood story's already happened. God's disappointed. And so that's the word that's used. God's, God's sad when he looks at the condition of humanity. This is the first time, I don't know if God's been angry, but it's the first time it says it, that God is angry. God's angry at Moses because Moses is, is pushing back against God these five times. And then he sees Aaron coming, Moses' brother, and he says, what about Aaron? You know, Moses, Moses could have had this amazing honor. He could have spoken for God. He could have been God's person, God's special connection there. And, and instead, we kind of bring Aaron along. And I love how it says Aaron the Levite. Well, Aaron's Moses' brother. So he's Moses the Levite too. So, so, so why? Why bring up his tribe? Well, he brings up his tribe because that's who's going to be the priest. Later on, it's the Levites, so it's kind of reflecting back to that, that we're connecting Aaron to being a Levite, uh, and then uh, that'll be the connection there. So it starts off with this situation where Moses doesn't really trust God. Moses doesn't trust that God will do what God says he will do, or that he could even use him to do this. So, so Aaron comes along, he's brought along to kind of represent Moses before Pharaoh. And remember the role of priests that we talked about. These are people that stand in the gap between God and, and people. There's, there's certain people that stand in the middle, and they bring uh, offerings to God, and they also bring God's blessing down to the people. So now we have someone else standing in the gap um, between, I suppose in a different way, between Pharaoh uh, and Moses. And we have Aaron, who's going who's gonna to kind of stand in the gap here. And he's going to do this again later on because Aaron will be the first high priest, but he'll switch and he'll be standing uh, there before God. The story is a great one. I don't have time to get into it all, but uh, again, Moses and Aaron, they confront Pharaoh. They eventually lead the Israelites out. One of the the big moments is when the whole army and and Pharaoh himself are crushed by by the water that comes onto them. And it's this this kind of beautifully poetic way that God works and, and God takes the most terrible things that the, Israel, the Egyptians have done, the curses, if you will, and uses those very same things to curse the Egyptians. We see this, this playing out through the blessing given to Abraham. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. So if you've ever wondered why, why is it so violent, why is there so much going on in these plagues, all this stuff, well, it all comes back to this promise to Abraham and Sarah and their descendants. It all, it all comes back there. And then we get out to Mount Sinai. Moses has, has led the people. They're out to Mount Sinai. God uh, meets them there. And this is really important here. This is Exodus 19, verses 5 through 6. And I think now that we've done a few weeks in this series, you'll see the significance here. Again, Exodus 19, 5 through 6. 
God speaking to the Israelites. It says, now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And then he says to, he's speaking to Moses, he says, these are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Again, the role of a priest. There's God, there's the people, there's, there's certain people that stand in the gap and help uh, mediate between the two. And here we're, we're told that it's not just going to be a person, that if they keep God's commands, if they keep, there's a big if here, if they do all of this, they as a group will be like priests to the whole world. They will be the ones that will stand in that gap. Now, all they have to do is do it. And, and then the Bible would just end right there. <laughs> if they only lived up to it, it would be a much shorter Bible. But they do not live up to it, and immediately they fall away. So, so here's our story for today. Here's our, our, uh, we're in Exodus 32, uh, and I'll just kind of walk through it. So, so the people say to Moses, we'll do that. Go, go tell God that we'll do it. And actually what God had told them was, if you decide to do it, you, I want you all to come up on the mountain. And the people kind of are like, well, we want to do it, but we're also afraid of God. So Moses, how about you go? We'll stay here. We'll stay at the foot of the mountain. We'll send Moses ahead. You know, God said, all of you come up. Eh, that's kind of scary. There's a cloud on the mountain. There's a storm up there. They don't, they don't know what they're getting into. So they stay at the base, and they send Moses ahead to represent them. And, and Moses has gone for 40 days. And that's a long time. When you see your leader walk into a storm on the top of a mountain, and you stand at the bottom, and, and you see it all going on, and, and he's gone for 40 days. And, and it's like they already said, I've heard someone describe it, it's like, it's like the marriage ceremony already happened, but they haven't like signed the papers yet. You know, it's like, it's like they already said they'll do it, but, but it's like between, between the ceremony and then actually like signing the legal documents, they decide to go a different route. It's, it's right there. They're so close. They're so close to completing this. And they already are given the Ten Commandments, and, and the first two are worship God alone and don't make any idol statues. So what do they do? Or rather, before we get to what they do, I, I, just to back up a minute, this is actually a big section in the book of Exodus. So, so the story pauses, and then we hear what God is telling Moses, what God is directing Moses for these 40 days. And it's all these different directions, and there's, there's plans that he's telling them how to build the tabernacle, which is going to be their like mobile temple of how they worship God. He, he tells them all the directions for that. Uh, and then he actually shows them this other thing. He shows them this, this glorious pattern of this human figure that, that will work in the tabernacle, that will work in the, the special place. It's the pattern for what the high priest is supposed to look like, and he's, and he's glowing almost. He has, he has all white clothes, and he has jewels on, and he has gold on, and, and he's sparkling. And, and he represents something, and, and again, this is supposed to be the high priest, and, and this is going to be Aaron. 
until it's his descendants later on. And he's dressed in white, and he's got this kind of turban crown on, and he's glowing. And yet, the very man who this role is for is currently down the mountain, at the foot of the mountain, and the people come, come before him, and this is our reading that was for today. It says, when the people saw that Moses was a long time coming down from the mountain, again, 40 days, that is pretty long, they gathered around Aaron and said, come make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. They've given up on Moses. He's been gone for 40 days. He's up in that storm. He couldn't possibly survive. And, and they're just ready to get this thing going. I mean, the marriage ceremony's already happened. They're just like, let's just get this worship happening. We know how to worship God. We've been worshiping gods in Egypt for hundreds of years. You know, so how do you worship a god? Well, you make a statue, and, and you bring it offerings, and you bring it praise, and, and then you do all these things, and, then, and that's, that's how you worship a god. So, so why don't we just make a god and just do it the way that we're comfortable doing it? Hopefully that doesn't apply too much in our own lives. Why don't we just worship God the way that we're comfortable worshiping God? Sometimes God asks too much for us. God wants us to love our neighbors. It's like, you know, I can go to church on Sunday. I can sing three songs. I can listen to a scripture reading. I can listen to a sermon, and then I can go, and I can just live my life. That's how I worship God. Come on, God, aren't you comfortable with that? Then we read the Bible, and we look into it, and it asks so much of us. Again, love people. Pray for your enemies. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands. But but there's a high standard of of what it means to follow God and to follow this Jesus. So don't let this be too like 3,000 years ago as we read this story. It's very easy to say like these, these people are foolish. How dare, how dare they think they can worship God the way they want to worship God? Who do they even think they are? Well, they're probably like us. So first Moses fails to trust God, and now Aaron is failing to lead the people towards God. So it's not looking good. It'll continue not looking good. So if you want like the good side, you've got to come back in a few weeks. Because this, this just goes from like bad to worse here. So God is, is up on the mountain. He can see what's happening, and we're told that God gets angry. And in his anger, he actually tells Moses that he's done with these people. He says, I'm just going to wipe them out. I'm, I'm going to keep my promise to Abraham and Sarah that their descendants will, will be this nation, but I'm just going to do it through you, Moses. I'm just going to start over with you and your descendants. I'm just going to wipe out these people. They've already turned away from me. But Moses stands before God, and he does a very priestly thing. Moses stands before God, and he starts interceding on behalf of the people. And he even goes as far as to offering his own life for the people. He says, God, why don't you take me, why don't you kill me, and and let these people live? Now, God doesn't take Moses' life. 
And God does forgive the people and move on with them. But I just love the story because when Moses comes down from the mountain, maybe you remember, Moses is glowing. It's hard to make that connection of what's going on here, right? Moses is glowing. He's not wearing clothes like he's glowing. It's like he is somehow representing this very figure that the high priest is supposed to look like. The high priest is supposed to wear this white. They're supposed to have these jewels on and this this gold, and they represent each of the tribes, and, and they're supposed to almost be glowing as they enter into the temple, but they're symbolically doing it. Now, as Moses is ahead, is with God, and he offers himself as a sacrifice, Moses starts to glow. And he returns down to the people, and we're told that it's his skin that's glowing, not his clothing. He's, he's... All right, Sunday school answer time. <laughs> Who's he acting like? Jesus, thank you. Even you at home said it on you. <laughs> he's acting like Jesus, and, that, and we just see it clearly. Matthew chapter 17, Jesus goes on the mountain. And, and, there's, and there's the others there. Moses is one of them. And Jesus, it's called the transfiguration of Jesus. And what does he do? He starts to glow. So this is clear. This is right through. Again, the story gets worse, though. So brace yourselves. So the tabernacle is built, and it's modeled after the Garden of Eden. We can see that in how it's described. And Aaron and his family, despite this, are still installed as the priests. And again, it gets worse because on their very, very first day on the job, on their very first day on the job, it's not entirely clear in Scripture, but we are told that two of Aaron's sons do what God did not command them to do. What it appears to say is that they, there's a lot of these really specific instructions on how they're supposed to give offerings, and it seems like they added incense to something they weren't supposed to add incense to. Now, it seems like a minor offense, but they're in this ultra-high, holy place. They're really elevated when they're in the temple. It's very uh, special, and God is being very serious about how this all works. And because of that, these two sons are struck dead on the spot right there in the tabernacle. We're told that their cousins have to come and they pull them out with ropes. They're not even allowed to go in there. Day one. So Aaron has four sons, so there's two more. <laughs> um, as you continue reading, again, it just gets worse and it gets worse. Interestingly enough, I... When it comes to Old Testament stuff, I like to look uh, at what different Jewish scholars say about some of these stories. And there's many Jewish scholars that talk about uh, this story of the golden calf as Israel's fall story. So in the garden, you have Adam and Eve that, that have the fall, right? But now God's people have their own fall. And, and the story just continues and it continues. And next week, we will look at David, uh, a, a figure who, who is a king, but often does kind of live into this priestly role in an interesting way. But before we get there, so, so just to, to tie it into our own lives, 
What is the sin of the golden calf story? There's several. I mean, I already gave you a hint on the first two. I mean, there's two of the, the commandments that they just clearly violated right away. Worship God alone. Okay, well, here they are worshiping this, this statue. And don't make any idle statues. Well, in order to worship a statue, you already had to kind of make a statue. Now, another interesting part is that the gold they use, God already spoke for. So when God is speaking to, to Moses, he's telling him how to use that very same gold that they brought out of Egypt to make the different parts of the decorations of the tabernacle. So not, not only are they taking and making this golden calf, they're using the very thing that, that God blessed them with. When they left uh, Egypt, they were able to take a, a plunder with them. And God has, God has plans for that. And they use it to make this golden calf. But it, it's so fascinating that as we look at this story here, Again, what do, what do they ask Aaron to do? Make for us gods that, that we know how to worship. This God that called Moses up on the mountain, this God is making us too uncomfortable. This God is outside of our control. This, this God is not acting in ways that, that we are comfortable with. He's making us wait 40 days, and we don't even know. Maybe it will end, maybe it won't end, but, but we're living in this tension, and and Aaron, why don't you just make for us gods that we know how to worship? You know, again, they've been in Egypt. They've been around all these other nations. They know how to worship gods in their own way. Make us a statue. We'll bring things to it. They, the, you know, they say make for us gods, but then they go into it and they say, this is the god that brought you out of Egypt. They don't even just make, like, other gods. They're not just going to follow new ones. They make... God himself, the real God, into a statue. I don't know, that sits different with me. Does that sound different to you? It's like, it almost seems like it wouldn't be as bad if they were just like, let's just leave this God behind. Who knows what this God's doing? We're just going to follow new ones that we'll just make for ourselves. But it's like, no, they decide, you know, this God, let's control him. Let's make this God in our own, uh, in our own way, a way that we know how to worship, a way that we know how to follow. Let's Let's not let this God be too wild. Let's tame God a little bit. And I'll be honest with you, I think I've done it. There's been times in my life where I think I got God pretty figured out. If I were to build a box, I, I think I could make the boundaries. God acts like this, God does this, and, and, and God... Uh, you know, ask this of us, and we can kind of build our nice little frame, and we can put, put God in there, we can like step back, and we can almost study God. Like our God is, is domesticated. Our God is under our control. It seems kind of like what the Pharisees are doing when Jesus is arguing with them, right? They got God all figured out. Left, right, up, down. They know how God is supposed to behave. And if they act a certain way, they know that God will act a different way. If they do a certain thing, God will maybe bless them in a certain way. Well, that's not following God. That's, that's called magic. Like the, re, the real thing, magic. Like that, that's what magic is. Like it's, if you interact with different people of the world, if you 
If you do a certain thing, you're like twisting the God or the God's arms, and then they like have to behave a certain way. Either you say certain words or you do a certain incantation or you, or you do something, and it's like you force God to bless you. God doesn't play that way. Not this, not this God, not the real one. Maybe the golden calf, but not the real one. Thank you for laughing, Dan. <laughs> what it reminds me of, and I'll end with this, is that in C.S. Lewis's book, The Chronicles of Narnia, God is represented as Aslan, right? He's the lion. That's in the book. And when they're first starting to hear about Aslan, Lucy, the little girl, is unsure about him because she's told that he's a lion. So she's expecting this king to be a human at this point. It's very early in the book. And she's confronted with this idea that Aslan is a lion, and Lucy says, is he safe? Because he's a lion. So is he safe? And she's speaking to the beavers at this point. And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. For you. And he, and he knows you. I mean... If you just think about, even in this book series, if they controlled Aslan and they told him to do exactly what they thought was right, it would probably play out different through the book series. But it wouldn't be as good. If they relied on their own wisdom, if they relied on their own ability, they, they, wouldn't, um, they would miss out. And this God that we follow, this is not a tame God. He comes and he goes as he pleases. No one controls him. No one can tell him what to do. Prayer is not magic. You don't get to twist God's arm and make him act in the way that you think he should in the way that, that you want him to. But just like Aslan, he is a good God. That's his character. That defines how he will act. That defines how he will he'll love in his life. And he cares deeply for you.